Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How is everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding Podcast. Jeff Gannon, Focused Compounding Podcast. How's it going over there? It's going very well, Andrew. How is it going with you? It is going fantastic. So you know what we haven't talked about in a long time? Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> volatility. Volatility. Okay. And the reason we I think it's like our third episode. Yeah. And we the only reason I know yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? so on the on the Spotify app, you yeah. could sort it by like oldest to new or oh, newest really? to old. So, so some people go so, from the beginning. So I did that and okay. it was too cringeworthy to listen to. All right. Um but I I, uh, I listened to our volatility one. All right. Actually. Right. And I think when we first started the podcast like two years ago or a year mm-hmm. and a half, whatever it was, um, there was a lot of volatility going on. Right. So we thought it would be actionable to talk about. And then not that I think there's a lot of volatility going on now because mm-hmm. I think we're only the past couple of days have just been whatever. I mean, yeah, not I mean relative to how much right, we're yeah. up, it's like nothing. But um I think it'd be good to talk about how volatility um, could be your friend and how okay. you can like, I guess, use it to your advantage and sort of keep your, your mental toolkit in check and, um, you know, be able just to look for good companies. But before I do that, if you do like the work we're doing mm-hmm. here, you want to also follow us on YouTube, go to youtube.com and type in focus compounding and you'll see my face. Yes. You'll see my face and be able to subscribe or be sure to subscribe there. We're going to be doing lots of content on there and we're probably going to do a value investing course as well. So, and that mm-hmm. will be for free. People charge thousands of dollars for that, but we're going to do it for free. Yep. There's already uh, videos about um, mental models up there that you're talking about. Yep, so yep. there's already stuff there for people. Yeah. Say. Yeah. So be sure to subscribe to that. What's our business model? Good faith. <laughs> we, we do, we put out good content and yeah. we hope that people subscribe and support us. Right. Sure, yeah. So there you go. Um, so anyway, so talking about volatility, mm-hmm. I guess the market has been at, at the time of recording this, it's not like it's down a lot or whatever, but I guess we've had a couple red days and people on Twitter have been going crazy about it and mm-hmm. whatever. But how do you think, how do you typically think about volatility, I guess, in the market? And I guess when it comes to the portfolio, uh, volatility, you don't, right? No, <laughs> no, I do think about volatility and <laughs> that volatility is good. Yes. We want volatility. Yeah. Uh, that makes it possible for me to do my job, uh, buying stocks at the right price. Um, and it's not possible when there isn't volatility, when the prices are moving around, I don't I get the option to buy stocks at, at, um, prices that I like the, f- the few stocks that the few businesses that I like at the right price. So generally, you know, with what I'm doing um, with managed accounts, we're looking for, you know, the kinds of businesses that someone like Warren Buffett would buy in the sense that they're predictable enough they can predict out earnings quite a few years, maybe 10 years or something. Uh, but we're only buying them at sort of, you know, value investor type prices. Yeah. So, you know, we're not paying 30 times earnings for a Coke, but we're paying, you know, less than 15 times earnings, sometimes less than 10 times earnings for um, companies that uh, you haven't heard of but that we think have, you know, moats and things like that. Sure. Well, because of that, without volatility, you know, I'm just looking at at stocks that are 20 or 30 times earnings, and they're never getting down to the lower level that we'd be wanting to buy them. So uh, I always have a, uh, a future return uh, in mind in terms of what I think it will return mm-hmm. over if held for a long time. Uh, usually I use like 10 years as a guess about that we would sell before 10 years 
in most cases, but that that's how you decide, you know, more so than sure. intrinsic value in mind. I'm thinking, okay, this will return 9% a year or 12% or whatever. And the big variable there for a predictable company, for other companies it might be different, but the big variable for a predictable company is price. Sure. So the expected return that you have really depends on volatility. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the only thing that's causing it to change. Otherwise, day after day, you're looking at something that you're expected to return 7% a year. And until prices drop, it's not going to become 10% yeah, yeah. a year. You're not going to be able to buy it. Sure. Know? Yeah. And that's why you have a watch list, right? Yep. A batting mm-hmm. order, if you will, of yeah. all the companies that you like, where if they do drop a significant amount, it comes up on your radar more, and then maybe you're more inclined to you know, purchase it. Yeah, and to some extent, actually, that's why I've been pushing uh, myself, kind of forcing myself to try to get the portfolio to be about half foreign and half domestic. Really? A lot of people have questions about that, about like, you know, why would you do that? Yeah. Is there any reason for doing that and stuff? Is this a diversification purpose? No, it's really just widening the amount of opportunities and it's not so much because there aren't enough stocks in the u.s the danger is that too many of them move together so it's not too many of them moving together from like a uh, a perspective of the returns you know that uh of the volatility once you own it so of like the beta and stuff that we'd be talking about of the portfolio what it really is is okay so sometimes when things are going great in the u.s stock market um, maybe people are concerned about Brexit. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe currency things in some country are causing some concern or something. There might be the kind of company we want, the kind of business we want that's available at a low enough price because of something country specific, right? So sometimes it's like industry specific, and and sometimes it's country specific. But usually something has to be happening uh, wherever that company is in that industry in that country uh, or in the world, which happens once in a while, um, for you to get a business that you think is great because a lot of people generally uh, would share your view about that at a good price. Sure. And so it's volatility is what you need for that. So honestly, that's why we kind of expand that to looking at um, foreign countries as much as possible is because there has been the difficulty of too many U.S. stocks um, not experiencing enough volatility. And so looking in other places for things that might be cheap enough mm-hmm. because of things that might happen in just one country that doesn't really affect the U.S. that much. Are you pretty agnostic towards what other country or countries on where you'd you'd want to look for ideas, or is it pretty much anywhere? Generally, yeah, it could be anywhere. Uh, how do you come the across right company and the right manager? How do you come across? And I think I know this, but people may be thinking mm-hmm. of this. How do you come across like foreign, um, you know, companies in, on screens? For example, like Guru Focus. A lot of times, if you come across a foreign yeah. company, like it's kind of like behind a paywall, or e- even other right. screens as well. Like, how do you typically come across? A- I don't really screen for foreign stocks. I mean, unless I have something that's specific to that country. There's one that I know that's good for the UK or something. I think there are some screeners people use for Japan and places like that. Mm-hmm. In general, I don't find screening. Uh, worldwide to be useful. The quality of the data is pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, lots of things about the companies are pretty bad. Um, the descriptions of it and stuff. There's sometimes language things with all sorts of weird stuff um, that causes a low uh, quality in terms of screeners versus the U.S. The U.S. is pretty good for screeners. Um, other countries generally not, although, like I said, U.K. is fine. No problem with the U.K. Mm-hmm. And there probably are screeners from some other countries I don't know well, like Canada or something. Um, for really small markets, you can just, you know, you just look at almost everything they have. You know, if something was happening in Ireland, I can look at every stock that trades in Ireland. Sure. It doesn't take that long. Yeah. Um, so you're saying like if there's like a macro thing that's going on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got it. Well, I've looked more at things in the UK because of Brexit. It hasn't sure. it hasn't changed since as much as you might expect. Um, I bought Japanese net nets after the tsunami. Mm-hmm. So um, there is sometimes something that draws your attention to it. I mean, I looked through all sorts of Greek stocks, didn't buy any in, in when they had uh, their debt crisis uh, quite a few years ago. Why do you think people use volatility as like a measure for risk? Uh, because it's how they experience it. This is a complicated one, but uh, 
it's very weird actually but buffett talked a little bit about this at the uh was it, a, it i think it was the annual meeting it might have been one of the interviews but i think it was the annual meeting where he was asked about private equity yeah and one of the things that oh, was yeah. mentioned yeah, there yeah. was you know they don't have to market the same way there's a greater chance that people aren't feeling the volatility in a private equity investment to the same extent that they are in a stock that's quoted daily sure and that's a huge thing and um I've pointed that out with Timberland, for instance. Um, there's a big thing where um, – so you can buy Timberland outright. You can just own Timberland. You can also own Timberland in certain funds that own Timberland and manage it and stuff like that. You can also buy like Timberland ETFs or specific timber companies, uh, public companies. Uh, now, really, if you're thinking rationally about it, it should not matter to you what the structure is. It just should matter what the after-tax returns that you're getting and the actual asset are over time. So if you're buying the same land, uh, either through uh, a publicly traded stock or you're buying it individually yourself, except for the tax consequences and things like that of it, it shouldn't matter. But the truth is it does matter. Um, less liquid timber companies, uh, tim timber stocks, often trade at a discount to more liquid ones, which doesn't make a great deal of sense. Yeah, because, why is that? Well, why I'd say it doesn't make sense. That's just true in general for stocks, right? Sure, so a lot of illiquid yeah. stocks trade at discounts. In countless examples of the stocks that we own, they are the least liquid version of whatever stock that is. So we own, in that, that industry or whatever in the U.S., we own the public company in that industry that's the least liquid. All the others are, are more liquid. That tends mm -hmm. to be the case. Sure. But t the weird thing about it is you're investing in something, a stock that's less liquid or more liquid, and yet you would comfortably own the uh, timber land itself, which is a less liquid investment. It, may, it might take – so, for instance, uh, a timber stock that's pretty illiquid might take an individual with a ton of money and stuff six to 18 days, let's say, six to 18 days to get in or out of it, right? Uh -huh. And I'm picking 16 to 18 days for a good reason, which is that in general – actually selling timberland is going to take you more like six to 18 months if yeah, you sure. owned it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm saying that logically it will be at least 30 times faster that you can get in and out of the stock. And yet you're concerned about that, whereas you would be okay holding uh, holding the underlying asset. And you sure. see that a bunch in – I saw that even with some things where there were some publicly traded things that would buy houses and stuff. And people um, – and some that were more liquid than others, the stock people would, would buy into. But of course – People aren't bothered by the fact that their home is an incredibly illiquid sure. investment. I've known yeah, people yeah. that's taken months and months to sell their house, yeah. and yet it doesn't bother them. Why is that? I mean, it's the psychological side of investing, right? not getting a quote. Yeah. That's it's, it, I mean, what do they say? Liquidity makes people act kind of weird. I mean, like, mm -hmm. I guess irrational, if you will, in some situations, yeah. but it's true, though. Yeah. If, if your bank went out and got 12 offers for your house every month, and then along with your mortgage, they sent you yeah. an estimate of your price yeah, yeah, yeah. and how much it changed from last month. <laughs> people would feel – they yeah, would honestly sure. feel differently about the asset. No, totally. Yeah, they would feel differently. It's a great way of putting it. I mean, they it's would kinda... say I was down 3% in January and you know, <laughs> yeah. start to worry about what that means. Yeah. It's interesting though. It's kind of like when Buffett – I think last year he said nobody buys a farm because they think it's going to rain more next year, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But you know that – the. The volatility of large extent is like the movement that you're seeing in the price, right? So when the more you check it, the more that becomes an issue. Yeah. And then there's actually, you know, there was a, there was some I forget the exact details of it, but there was a um, experiment that they did with with showing people different amounts of, uh, not different amounts, the same records, but just different intervals of how frequently they they updated um, stock price uh, history for them. And so if you did a stock price history where you showed uh, this is what the stock market looked like over the last 100 years, 
and you showed people like um, daily or monthly returns, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. then they uh, then if you ask them, well, do you want to how much do you want to put in stocks and how much in bonds? They're going to say a lot less in stocks, a lot more in bonds. But if you say, okay, now I'm going to show you what it was. Uh, each of ten years for the last hundred years, uh-huh. then they're like, "Oh, stocks." Yeah, because yeah. very few, rarely did the ten years turn out badly. Sure, but you know, probably two out of three, three out of four, whatever. I mean, the, uh, Some the reverse of, of that, one out of three or so uh, of many of the shorter periods turned out badly. Yeah. You know, I'm sure that uh, there were tons of examples of that. So that that's what you get with the volatility, and you know, the thing I say to people all the time about that is just honestly, just look at the stock prices less often. You, I'm not joking about that. You will believe that there's more volatility if you check the stock price a couple times a day than if you check it just at the end of every week. Sure, yeah. And honestly, the volatility doesn't matter. All that matters for you to decide if you want to buy or sell the stock is the actual price. So it's very important that you know the price of everything. It's not very important that you know if it's gone up or down. That's the part that really does not matter that much. Yeah, and I think yeah. people get confused about that. They know, oh, I'm a value investor. I need to know the price of everything. Yes, you need to know the price. But you don't need to see this red or green arrow. That part's not important. Yeah, there's been a couple of times I've messaged you saying like, "Hey, you know X Y Z stock is up. Right. Have you checked?" Yeah, and you're like, own, "You're yeah. like, no." Nah. You said something like, "You haven't checked it because it hasn't closed yet, or something like that." The yeah, stock. probably something yeah. like that. Yeah. I, I think one thing that's kind of, and I think a lot of people, if they want to, um, th- to sort of help guard against that, you know, when you talk about like over a ten year period, mm-hmm. is one thing that we do is, and I learned this from you, is see what the stock has done forever. Yeah. Right. So you, really so you do like, okay, what is the stock since it's been, what is it return since it's been public? Mm-hmm. What did it do the past fifteen years, ten years? And that kind of just helps in my opinion, you know, think of it working, you know, geometrically over time. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's part, like, I think people, uh, it's not like, for instance, it's not at all the case that I like to see uh, a stock trading at a low when I'm going to buy it sure. or something. That's yeah. not, I, I liked, usually the kind of companies that I want to buy have had very good 15-year mm-hmm. uh, stock records, almost always. Uh, and they've certainly had great records since they've gone public. They're not necessarily things that are at five-year lows and stuff like that. The other thing that I've noticed, um, so with the volatility stuff, the other thing that I notice a lot, which is kind of interesting, is um, I've realized compared to other value investors I've talked to, that I sell my losers more than they do. So like you get out of them or what? Yeah. Okay. And I don't know why that is. Uh, I don't think that I'm doing it because they're they're performing badly as a stock. Yeah, yeah. But just because I don't like them as much as the thing I'm replacing them with. But the thing that I've noticed a couple times with people talking to me about it is I sell something and they're like, isn't that a couple percent below, you know, the price you originally bought it or something? And I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't matter that's 1%. I have two stocks that I know uh, well from like seeing what they were down or whatever that were down less than a percent. And I can tell you from talking to people, most people will never sell a stock where they have like a 1% loss in it. Unless it has like, to get to that yeah. even point. It has to turn green yeah. before they'll sell it. Yeah. And this is what I mean about the volatility thing. It does not, the price is very important, but that's still a 1% price difference. That's all that it is. The fact that you bought it at that one particular price just becomes an obsession for them mm-hmm. about, you know, deciding whether this was a success or a failure, you know, when really it's still just a 1% difference. And there's nothing wrong with selling a stock for a 1% loss or something, or for a 10% loss if you found something that's better to put it into. Sure. Um, selling because a stock went down is a dumb idea, but not selling because it hasn't gotten back to the price that you bought it at is also a really dumb idea. Mm-hmm. And yet I, with value investors, I see that a lot, the, the second one there, where they do not like to sell things that are down from the point they originally bought it. So the way that we place bids... Mm-hmm. Have you always done it like that? And it, could that be good for people to? And the way that we do is we typically just put limits in, good to cancel orders. We yes. let the volatility, I guess, kind of come to us, if you will. In a lot of cases, correct. We're yes. very we're very patient when getting in companies. 
Yeah. So for those who don't know, like the difference between kind of illiquid stocks, yeah. if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know more about illiquid stocks than most people. But like if you go to buy Microsoft, generally you're just putting in a market order to yeah, say yeah, buy now, and that's like very that. close to what yeah. happens, and it gets executed right away. What we're generally doing is we're bidding to buy a stock at some price, which is lower than, um, well, often lower than last trade, but certainly lower than the ask, than mm-hmm. someone wants to be paid for yeah. it. And then you're waiting and to see what happens, and sometimes... Um, you will end up, they will end up with a price coming down to you right away. And sometimes it'll be a long time. Do you think that's market makers filling it or is it other individuals us, that see uh, it or what? Yeah. So, I mean, I can tell you kind of with, for us, uh, cause there's some data on that. Um, overwhelmingly it's market makers when it's small amounts. Yeah. 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 No, no, no. But I mean, some of the things we got filled, no, I know that they're not mostly market makers. We got filled with too much. Mm-hmm. Market makers are not willing. I mean, in OTC stocks and stuff, it can be different in other places. Market makers aren't interested in selling you 9,000 shares at uh, you know $100 each. Sure. Uh, what they're interested in is $100 of a $9 stock. That's right. what they love to do. Mm-hmm. You know? um, they love to deal in small amounts over and over again. Because the transaction. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They, they don't want risks of carrying a lot of inventory one way. Yeah. So, no. And that happens a lot. When we want very, very liquid stocks, what you need to do is you need to get a person who's not a market maker to sell you that stock. It's usually in illiquid stocks very easy to get someone to sell you 100 shares or mm-hmm. something. But as, what you'll realize is as soon as you buy the 100 shares, they're not going to give you those 100 shares at that same price again. The market maker is not going to keep doing that. So very quickly, you have to find someone who isn't a market maker who wants to sell you stock. It, you know, just in general, you're not going to get filled by a market maker that way. But for people listening to this, if you want 100 shares of... You know, if you want a thousand dollar, two thousand dollar position or something, yes, it's going to be a market maker probably that's going to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, almost certainly. What else do you think? So, I mean, limits, limit orders, seeing how the stock performs well over time. Mm-hmm. Um, what else do you say? Like, uh, I guess, good to cancel orders where you you know put it, you let well, the volatility yeah, come to that's you. That's one way we should think about it is that when we make a decision to buy a stock, yeah, often. I mean, it, it can be a little different depending on our situation, but I would say a pretty good kind of uh, general example of what we do is we would put in a bid and then we wouldn't change that bid till next week basically mm-hmm. so yeah, look at it like so, once a week yeah. yeah so like during that week what might happen is the price might come down and we might get our shares if not then yes the stock could run away from you during that one week for illiquid stocks it makes sense to do that because you don't want to kind of buy your own bid and cause the stock to to move in a direction and so you don't want to do that but it is logical for people listening to this that you don't want to also be like Okay, I'm going to buy the stock. Oh, it went up. Okay, I'm going to pay more for the stock now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you want to always have in mind a price that you have. And um, uh, I mean, I don't really think in terms of the price. I think in terms of the return I expect from it, which is based on the price. Mm-hmm. So if the stock goes up 20%, you don't want to still be going, okay, well, I'll buy it now at the, yeah, the higher sure. price that way. But it's interesting. What I find more from people is um, they have a price they want to buy it at when it goes down. Well, the investors a lot of times I see with great companies – they always want to buy it 15 to 20% less than where it is. And it doesn't and when it gets down 15 to 20%, they still want to buy it at 15 to 20%. Yeah, they were oh, I'm just going to wait for it to <laughs> I'm going to see how much lower it can yeah. go. Yeah, sure. And and when it actually starts happening, there's some sort of reason. Now it's usually just news stories and whatever, but now that's gotten them to adjust their sure. estimate. And there's too much adjusting of estimates that way. So like you think it's worth um you know, you you thought that this restaurant was worth a uh, hundred dollars a share. Then it comes out with the same store sales that are down a percent, and now you think it might be worth eighty dollars a share. Unless you really misjudged it in the first place, you shouldn't be doing that. You know, your estimate for it shouldn't be varying a lot. Now, for me, for some companies, that would be the case, but not for anything that we would buy for the managed accounts. Those are all things where 
the amount of there's not much news that can come out that drastically changes my opinion of it. That shouldn't be happening because you want to be looking at things that are more predictable and stuff, sure. like the sorts of things that Buffett would buy mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, things where they're commodity businesses and things that'd be a lot tougher. Mm-hmm. But for something that has a more predictable sort of past, yeah, and, that, and that's the other thing to look at is like I always like to look at as many past years of earnings as possible. 20 years, things like that. Yeah. And see it um, charted out for me. Um, or at least see it just by running your eyes over it to look at just... Because you just want to make sure the stock works out over time. The business yeah. work. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a company that we own that's paid out a dividend. Or it's been profitable. Or net it's income has grown by yeah. how long? I mean, 20 years in a row or something yeah, crazy something like, like that. that. And yeah, it's yeah. paid out dividends 20 years in a row. I mean, you know, over time, mm-hmm. the stock works out. dividends 40. Yeah, longer than more, that. Yeah, yeah, about 20 years of, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, 20 years of, like, EPS gains or whatever, basically. Yeah. yeah. And there are some companies like that. Um, You know, they're more likely in financial-type things and subscription-type things and stuff like that. But it's important that the to understand how volatile a stock is. Because, like, what you're talking about there, for example, um, it's rare for earnings to change by more than 5 to 10% a year, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. In going back 20, 25 years, it's rarely changed by more than 5 to 10% a year. However, we have so many examples... Where the stock is moved by way more than five to ten percent a year, there are examples where it's moved fifty percent in six months. So you really have to think about that for a second. Yeah, yeah. Something that doesn't change in earnings five to t- more than five to ten percent a year for twenty years, for some reason, has periods where the price changes fifty percent in six months, and not one period. That's happened more than once. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it, that's what we mean by volatility. Like, w- what sense does that really make? Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't know. How do you think about volatility if you're fully invested? Because obviously we have some yeah, cash. I mean, that's true. We have some cash. You know, we have some cash, but I mean, right, you probably think about yeah. volatility a little bit differently when you're fully invested. Sure. And, and I guess like, that's where a lot of people get scared probably. Yeah. And that is one thing where people sometimes talk about like, why aren't, why, um, they don't aren't we fully stock. invested? Yeah. When things are going well, people are always asking, why aren't you fully invested? Because, um, but seriously, people say a lot to me like, okay, well, why would you hold cash instead of Berkshire Hathaway or the S&P 500 or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah. The reason for doing that is, um, and this is sort of the reason for owning illiquid things too. The problem is not really that you can't sell something. Liquidity is going to let you get out of the stock, but it's not going to let you get out of the price you want. So, you know, in 2008 or whatever, everything was dropping by a lot. Yeah, yeah. And so it was very liquid. You could get out. You know, small investors never had any problems getting out of any yeah. of the stocks that they were in. But at the end of the month, it could be 10% less than what you had been hoping it was going to be at the beginning. And that will happen even to Berkshire Hathaway. And so, you know, um, the reason, you know, it's a complicated thing because if you look at the entire time, I can look at the entire time I've been investing personally and stuff like that and see that on average, definitely I would have done better being 100% invested because sometimes I've been more in cash than I am now. It's never an objective to be in cash. But I think I've said this before, which is that um, if I don't see something that has a, to me, clear path. Um, which is pretty usually clear, sort of conservatively calculated path to 10% annual returns over the long term, I'm not going to buy it. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes that happens. That's that's happened uh, lately. Um, you know, I think in the managed accounts, we probably average 20% cash over time. We've only been operating for about a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe a little lower than that. I would say a little lower than that. Okay, a little 16, lower. Or, yeah, probably right. Yeah, in that area. Yeah. Between so 16 and 20%. Yeah. Yeah, and it's frustrating because if you look at our quarters, for instance, I can see that if we had been not in cash at all, then we would have outperformed in cases where we performed in line, Yeah, you know, uh-huh. and I'm sure that, you know, if you're looking quarter to quarter, that matters where yeah. you're like, oh, we would have beaten the S&P by a couple percent if we were 100% in cash and instead we, we didn't, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, 
that probably upset some people when they realized that, oh, their stocks outperformed the S&P. Yeah, sure. But because they weren't 100% in their stocks, you know, they didn't. But, you know, the the thing with the volatility with cash is that it's almost going to work the opposite of what you think you should do. So What do you mean when, by that? Well, when people are like, cash is king and everything, that's, <laughs> that's when it's not. Yeah, sure. That's when you need to be spending it like crazy. Uh-huh. And when people are saying, why haven't you been 100% invested in yeah, things, yeah. that's when it might be useful. What do you think about when people say you never go broke taking a profit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, I hate I'm not that. A, that's that's I'm such not a like a broker of, saying, yeah, isn't it? I'm not a big fan of that one. I'm also yeah. not a big fan of like uh, you sell half the position after it's doubled and now the rest is free money. Or yeah, house money. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. let it ride or something like that. Yeah, yeah I'm no. not as big a fan of that one. Uh, no, I mean, I, I think I'm pretty uh, – I mean, last year we sold a position that I, I just sold and it wasn't a big performer or anything. And I'm uh-huh. sure people were like, why would you do that? Yeah. But – um, I'm not afraid to sell things that are, are have pretty flat or down or whatever from what we've had recently. It's it's looking at the the company and the price and um, and there was other stuff that you like better. I mean the way yeah, you, the way you weight that in your head. Yeah, you just have way. another idea that you like more. Yeah, but yeah, or feel more. Um, you feel safer or whatever. Yeah, you know? but it comes down to the asset. A lot of cases. I mean we're willing to hold a business that I really like a lot that a business that I think earnings will be up almost every year for the foreseeable future, you know, and there's some like that. So, you know, when you see a business and your best guess is that in almost all the next 15 years, earnings will be a bit higher than they were the year before earnings per share. Mm -hmm. Uh, That kind of business, I'm a lot less likely to sell. You'll notice even if it goes up in price and stuff, then it's something that's more of like an asset play or very cyclical or very, those things have a tendency to get sold pretty quickly. Um, and that's just because of, you know, you can go too far with that. Uh, Buffett held Coke when he knew that that was too expensive. And he's even talked about that. He yeah. probably should have sold it, right? And that was a mistake, yeah. Mm-hmm. He, you know, um, but, and it is a mistake to do that. Um, and, and certainly we don't hold things that long, or and we certainly don't hold, well, nothing that we own has ever gotten to a price like Coke got in the end of the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, very few stocks get to those kind of prices. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's. I think that a volatility is a, in part a big advantage of it is the ability to sell out your lowest quality businesses and buy higher quality ones. That's yeah. what I always like to do. And so, like, when I think back to 2008, to t- the end of 2008 to the beginning of 2009, well, really the first six months of 2009 especially, um, I just upgraded to just the best businesses that I've probably ever owned as a group in the portfolio. And that's just because they were so cheap. Whereas normally I, I don't get the chance because I'm a value investor or whatever. To I'm not willing to pay 20 to 40 times earnings or something. I want to pay 10. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly there was a bunch of businesses available at 10 that were the very best that you know I could imagine. It's kind of like you wrote a blog post about have any of your sell decisions when you've raised mm-hmm. when you've sold stock just to simply raise cash. Right, they haven't added be, value because you um, not because you had another idea or whatever like an opportunity cost speaking wise. Uh, they didn't add any anything no. to your performance. Yeah. Nope, they hurt performance. But in all those cases, those were good businesses. Or I, I don't shouldn't say they were good businesses as much as I should say I turned out to be right about the businesses long term. Yeah. None of this works unless it's what we're really saying is like you don't want to sell something to raise cash if you think you're right about the business over the next ten years, mm-hmm. and that's what we're talking about. If you notice, like in the portfolio that I run. If you see that I'm not selling some stuff, regardless of it getting a bit higher in price and things like that, there that probably means that I th- think that I'm still right about the 10-year future of the business. Mm-hmm. And if you see me selling it, I'm a lot less certain about the 10-year future. Sure. And that's what kind of happens a, a lot that way. And so when you're talking about do my sell decisions add value, 
No, they didn't if I was right about the business. Now, sell decisions, sometimes taking losses even with sell decision, did add value. Sure. Um, I can think of a few. Uh, I sold Barnes & Noble. added value. That stock went down quite a bit after I sold it. Um, I sold. I kept the BWX Technologies part of uh, Babcock & Wilcox, sold the part that went down to basically zero. Yeah. So that kind of sell is a good decision. Sure. So selling to avoid you were really wrong about part of, in that case, part of the business or whatever, but you were really wrong about something about the business. Selling to per, to uh, correct a business error that way is a really good thing. But selling because something went up in price that you were really right about the business. Is, not because you yeah. like another idea or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To raise cash is, is not a good idea. Now, because you like another business is a different story. If you find something better, you know, which is what generally is what you want to have all your sell decisions be. You would love them to all be selling something you like to buy something that you love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about selling because you don't like where the current market is? Well, I don't do that. Yeah. I know the answer to all these questions. I'm just thinking <laughs> of stuff that people may be thinking, you know. Yeah. And I, you know, and I just said before, I mean, I think we know even going back a year and a half or whatever, when I talked about it, I've said that I thought the market was uh, expensive, expensive, yeah. Yeah. you know. And so from the perspective of like timing the market or whatever, shouldn't I be in some huge amount of cash? I'm pretty sure we've never, since we started the accounts, been over 20%, right? Like, there's never been a no, day where we're over 20% no, cash. No, no. Okay. Unless it's, so, like, an, obviously a new account, but yeah, an actual yeah, yeah. model portfolio, no. No. So, there you go. So, the entire time we've been doing the managed accounts, I thought the market was very overpriced, mm-hmm. and I've never had more than 20% in cash. So, you can see that's not a market timing thing. That's not how I think about it. And I think it's a good idea for you not to think about it. That way either, you know, to have an opinion. If you want to have an opinion on the market, that's fine. When I see the market's overpriced, I think generally, I mean, it's just really hard to find anything. That's like what Buffett and Munger were talking about where they said um, the price they'd have to pay to take over a whole business is incredibly high and stuff. That's all I mean is that all the kind of great companies on my watch list, my wish list, whatever you want to call it, uh, are too expensive for me to buy. That's what I mean when I say the market's expensive. Got it. So if you had to give the listeners... A few takeaways on on volatility and how Mm -hmm. to use it as your advantage. What would you say? Okay. My number one suggestion would be check stock prices less often. That would definitely be number one. Okay. Uh, My number two suggestion would be to use volatility to upgrade the quality of the businesses that you own. Okay. And um, my number three? Yep. Okay. Would be to don't be afraid to sell something that you have a paper loss, an unrealized loss on, that would make this a realized loss. That doesn't mean anything. The, you know, the opportunity cost or an actual realized loss are not any different. Yeah. So don't be afraid to do that. What were your suggestions? And then I would say at another a number four, yeah. build a watch list. That's the most yeah, yeah. that's the most important thing you do though. That's true. I mean you do list, that's yeah. what you do. You know that's all that well most of the time all I'm doing is a watch list because yeah. we're not changing what we own that much all the time. Yes. So yeah. So build a watch list of where you could be able to act decisively. If yeah, there the is businesses volatility. you know well and yes. like and buy those when there's price volatility. Yep. I agree. I agree. Awesome. Well, I thought that was a, a, a great podcast. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us. If you do like what we are doing here and you want to support us, feel free to give us a rating and review on the iTunes podcast app. That helps us out a lot. If you want to join Focus Compounding, go to focuscompounding.com. Um, not only will you see a place center in your email for a free 1000 plus word but typically 1000 mm-hmm. um you know right up from uh right up every single month or every single week excuse me stock right up yeah stock mm-hmm. right up um but if you do want to sign up for the premium membership use the podcast promo code and that takes some money off of your subscription price yeah. every single month want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us thank you so much for all the support ratings and reviews that means a lot to jeff and myself and we'll see you in the next podcast hey this is jeff gannon and that was the focus compounding podcast the podcast where andrew and i talk general investing concepts 
If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.